Welcome to the Growth Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. Every week, I talk to authors, subject matter experts, and millionaire mentors to share the lessons that will help you and me be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Today, I had a fantastic conversation with Steve Magnus, a world-renowned expert on performance. He is the author or co-author of Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and The Science of Running. We talked about his new book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong, and The Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Let's get right into the show. Steve, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Where I'd love to start with you before we dive into your book, Do Hard Things, is to give a brief bio or introduction to our audience so they know who you are and what we're about to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Steve Magnus. Who I am is a little complicated of a question because most of my life, it all centered around athletics and running. And that was my background. So as an athlete, I was a runner, I coached runners. But then in the gosh, now past seven, eight years, I've kind of moved beyond the athletic field and looked at almost performance holistically. So how do we apply some tools, techniques, rules, psychology, science around performance to all aspects of our life to get better, more sustainable success, avoid burnout, all of those things. So most recently, as you alluded to, I I wrote a book called Do Hard Things, which was my attempt to kind of look at resilience and look at, you know, maybe where we've kind of gotten it wrong and where the latest science and research and best performers can point us away to developing some. So let's start right there, because you start by before going into the four pillars and how we do develop toughness or resilience, you start with saying, hey, here's some of the things we've got wrong in the past. And I'll read you a quote, pretty decent sized one, and give you some time to unpack it because it kind of encapsulates the first 10 pages before it. And that's our definition of toughness in the broader world is broken. We've confused it with callousness and machismo of being manly and stoic. The old model of toughness is represented in the Bobby Knight School of Coaching, authoritarian parents, and the callous model of leading. It's the myth of an inner warrior, one built on the misguided notion that at the heart of being tough is a type of callous demandingness. It's a remnant of a time when military-style drill sergeants and coaches and parents who thought they were dictators, who thought They dictated our view of the concept. Toughness has been hijacked. We've prioritized external displays over true inner strength, and there are consequences. So that was a fair long quote and gives you a lot to chew on. Where do you want to dive into on that? Yeah, so thanks for reading that because it really sets the stage. Because to me, like that quote encapsulates one of the central problems. Inevitably, people answer with like, big strong guy the like military navy seal the like person who can put their head down and push through anything and not that those people aren't tough but what it does is it it focuses on the external like this idea that we need to look tough and that look means that you don't show emotions that you like put your head down and bulldoze through everything that the old uh movie in baseball said like there's no crying in baseball no showing emotions like tough guys don't do that stuff and it's fundamentally wrong 
Like, and the reason I say it's fundamentally wrong is if you look at the research, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but like, you need to be able to listen to your body. You need to be able to not just grind through things, but navigate through things. When you look at leading others, toughness isn't created through that military drill sergeant style, but it's showing people like, hey, like, I'm going to allow you to be challenged, fail, get back up, try again, and do so in a supportive environment. So I think we need a realigning with our definition of toughness. I mean, it's interesting when you bring up the Navy SEALs, because when you step back and think about it, the physical aspects of the people that we visually think of, they may need that for certain of the physical aspects of the challenge. But for every big, strong, strapping guy that makes it into the SEALs, There's five that look exactly the same that fail. So shouldn't we be looking at, well, clearly it wasn't that look because those five dropped out. That one didn't. So what differentiates that one from the other five? Like, what is it they have in addition to this physicality that we need to dig into? Exactly. I love that you brought that up because that's what you're kind of getting at is like everyone in that situation is big, strong, powerful, like all that fit, all that stuff. But it really is kind of that inner strength that differentiates it. And although not in the Navy SEALs, I was fortunate to talk to someone who was in a different special forces who kind of put this very clearly to me. He said, like, everyone looks tough until like you get smacked in the face with the difficult thing. And then that's when you really find out like that inner strength is. He was like, you would be surprised how many people acted the part and looked confident and tough and all that stuff until they got, I don't know, dropped off into the woods and told they were to survive. And all that facade kind of faded away. And it really is those inner characteristics, which we can kind of define and the military has as well as they've looked at the people who make it in in those special forces or doing crazy things. And most of them have, what do they have? They have emotional flexibility, which means that they don't just hide away their emotions. They're able to experience the kind of nuance of it and slice and dice it apart. They have cognitive flexibility, which means they have more than one way to cope right? They don't just say, hey, I'm going to grit and grind my way through. They are more likely to appraise stress as a challenge. So something to go towards that presents an opportunity instead of a, a threat. They process internal signals better. So getting back to that emotions, and then they respond instead of react, meaning they don't like spiral out of control when the stress is high. But they're kind of able to keep that even keel of, hey, I get it. I'm stressed. Like this is high pressure situation. But in order to perform, like I can't like let that get the best of me. I have to have that equanimity. And, and that's what the modern military kind of looks at. Okay. How do we find and then develop those things versus just throw people into the deep end of the water and see who survives? So on the idea of the military, because you pointed out that in 1989, the U.S. military, so this is already 32 years ago, 33 years ago, the U.S. military introduced the Center for Enhanced Performance, and they were focusing on teaching cadets about goal setting, positive self-talk, stress management, and shortly after, that branched out to all areas of the military and focusing on improving mental strength and resilience. And you pointed out that in 2018, 
the U.S. Army is the largest employer of sports psychologists in the country. But then you step away from the Army and you still have parents and coaches who think that the Navy SEALs Hell Week is how we should be training 8-year-old and 11-year-old kids. So how did the military figure it out 32 years ago, but we're still holding on to this archaic model that makes no sense anymore? Well, uh, it's pretty simple because the military, like, performance matters. It's literally life and death, right? So if the old model, then they're sitting there, and this is what happened, what pushed it is they're like, oh, man, our guys and, and gals are struggling, you know, in really stressful situations. Maybe initially what started this is they noticed that people really struggled when they were prisoners of war and like the Korean War and other things. And they were like, we got to do a better job of preparing it. So in the military, it's literally life and death. So they're going to figure out what actually works and what's needed often. And why didn't that translate? Well, it doesn't translate for a simple reason, because like, in the greater world, what we've done is we've held on to kind of like the movie version, because it looks a lot cooler to look and see someone be Rambo or whoever it is, right? Then it does to think, oh, that person is developing because they're sitting down next to a sports psychologist or going through like simulated training to up these mental skills. And it's not seen as a sign of weakness, but no difference than if I wanted to get stronger, what would I do? I'd go to the gym and probably get a strength coach to teach me how to get stronger versus trying to do something crazy on my own. So it's the same when it comes to these mental skills. I just think in the greater world, we've kind of held on to this myth instead of like turn to, okay, what actually works? What actually gets people more resilient, tougher, etc.? And that makes absolute sense in amateur athletics, partially because one of the observations I've had is a lot of coaches in amateur sports, like your kids, they coach the way they were coached when, when they were kids. So despite more research that indicates, for example, in hockey, hey, you should never have kids just standing in the corner. You should have different stations set up and people should always be doing something. You look down and people are doing the same drill you did in the early 90s. And you're thinking, well, that drill doesn't make sense today. Like, why are they still doing the old St. Louis? And then, so there's, that's one thing. But then you take, for example, the NHL. So take that kids hockey and now you go to the NHL and you have a coach like John Tortorella who's just ripping his players in the news, embarrassing them. Like, how does the research be out there in a company that, because it's a bit more like the military, I mean, millions and millions of dollars on the line, and they're still hiring coaches that beat people up for a job. So that's a great question. And I think it's hard to slice and dice apart, but I think what it comes down to is this, is you look at, First, who is doing the hiring? And you look at people who do the hiring, whether it's, you know, GMs or owners or whoever it is in this. Often what happens is they either came from the sport or they have a certain conceptualization of the sport that is stuck in, let's say, the 90s, right? So you get that same approach where it's like, oh, okay, this is how it worked when we won the Stanley Cup or made the playoffs in the 90s. Like, this is how it needs to be done now. And Regardless of the level or the millions on the line, sometimes that's what gets stuck because sports are very insulated. So we saw this in baseball, for example, like 
baseball did all sorts of dumb things until the kind of money ball revolution finally made people wake up and like force them to be like, okay, like we should pay attention to this stuff outside of the traditional avenues that actually matters. And that really didn't change, I think, in baseball until well, I think it was the Boston Red Sox won the World Series with a bunch of analytics and, and people jumped on board. And now you have the Houston Astros, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in sport, for whatever reason, especially sports like hockey, baseball that have a very long historical tradition where we still talk about Wayne Gretzky, Guy Lafleur, like hey, going back decades, decades, decades. And I think that there's this notion of like, oh, almost we romanticize that and want to hang on to that. And that kind of gets in the way for some coaches and some avenues. But what you see is like the coaches generally, not always, but the coaches who kind of modernize and take an approach that is maybe more backed by both research and experience and combine that with some of their experience in the NHL or what have you, is they're a lot more successful over the long haul. It's really hard nowadays to, I think, be successful with kind of that old school model, partially because also athletes in that area, they have more choice and autonomy now. So it's easier to kind of move around and know what you're getting into versus just being like, okay, this is the team that offered me the contract and I'm stuck here for five years. So I'm going to withstand whatever is going on. And for our listeners, it's important to recognize that although we're talking sport and coaching, this translates into our everyday lives when you look at the workplace and you have that leader that's banging on the chest and smacking the table and yelling at their employees. It may work for short bursts of time, but it's not a a long-term sustainable model to get the best behavior out of the colleagues on that team. Exactly. And the research backs this up pretty clearly. It makes sense with how we function. So fear, which is what they're using when you have that like authoritarian style and banging your chest and like, I'm going to fire you. Fear works really well as a motivator over the short term, right? It works. It developed so that when we were on the Savannah and we saw the lion, fear hit and we booked it out of there or escaped. But then when that lion was gone, that fear comes down and we're okay and we get back to normal and and stuff. What doesn't work well is when that fear is constant and chronic because our body just goes, hey, like, I get it. I was afraid and that worked for a little bit. But if it's constant and chronic, it just pushes us towards like burnout, apathy, like lacking motivation, being like, what's the point? Because, you know, even if I do well, I'm still going to get like demeaned or yelled at or what have you. So what happens is in the workplace, sometimes that fear can work for a a short time, but inevitably it fails over the long haul and you see performance suffer, burnout go through the roof and just employee morale just suffer and performance go with it. And I found that as I read the book and and I went through the mental aspects and I looked back on my last 10 to 20 years as a, a leader in the finance world and building teams is the greatest areas of growth for me and for my team consequentially were learning to meditate, reading about stoicism, understanding cognitive behavioral therapy and changing how I talk to myself and the impact that then translates to on my team. So let's dive into that. Can you describe the pillar at a high level and then we'll dive into some of the details of it? 
Yeah, absolutely. So it kind of comes back to that example I was using in the military of like, if you walk around acting tough, acting confident, like feeling like, you know, there's faking it until you make it all the time. What happens is when reality smacks us in the face, like that facade fades away. So it's much better to embrace reality, which means like, know the demands you're facing, and then be clear eyed on like what your capabilities are, and whether you can face those demands or where you might fall short. And when we have that clear eyed vision, what it does is it makes us more likely to see, you know, those difficult moments as challenges instead of threats, because we know what we're facing, even if it seems, you know, crazy. So the high level example I'd say is if you're going to sign up for a marathon, you want to know that a marathon is going to be difficult and that no matter how fit you're going to be, it's still going to be a struggle. And you want to know, hey, I'm roughly capable of maybe X, Y, and Z so that I don't sprint off the line and try and do something that I'm not capable of. So it really is that kind of matching between, you know, challenge and demands or demands and capabilities that kind of sets the stage for embracing reality. Okay, so there's three things we'll unpack there together. So the first one, and you put, I love equations, it's the accountant math guy in me. Performance equals actual demands divided by expected demands. And then I noticed that you added a a different element to that one later, but we'll save that. So we're looking at what is it actually going to take and what do I think it's going to take? And part of that, you said, like, what are you capable of versus what does it take? And so how do we get better at each of those pieces, at looking at things and saying, hey, what is this really going to take? And what am I actually capable of? Because then we can pick up our key thing to all of this is what's that skill gap in the middle so that I can build that skill gap. This is where it really comes down to self-awareness, which a lot of times I think we think we almost have this optimism or positive bias, which I think can be good. Optimism is a good thing. But the kind of optimism that I think you need is one that was summarized with uh, Abraham Lincoln, who essentially had what I'd call or what others called like tragic optimism, which was like optimism over the long haul, right? But in the here and now being like very clear eyed on like, okay, this is going to suck, right? When he was going through the Civil War and stuff like that. And whether you like the word tragic optimism or some other variants, but I think there's something around that of like, okay, if we're looking at how do we shape or how do we understand the demands that we're going to face? Well, yes, we can be a little optimistic, but we've got to see it clear eyed, which means like, get rid of the false bravado, get rid of the like puffing your chest and just like, what's it gonna take? And then the other side of that is, what are you capable of? In Your capabilities comes from doing the work. So where do you get that self-awareness on, okay, how do I know what I'm capable of? Well, have you put in the practice? Have you put in the hours? Have you put in the work? How did that go? Are you prepared for the presentation you're going to give? Are you just winging it? Like that right there shapes your reality. Again, to use the marathon example, have I put in the miles to get ready or did I just sign up on a lark and I'm going to show up and not be ready? Like understanding that shapes what we're capable of. So it's really becoming that like clear eyed on that vision. So much to chew on on that one. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, 
please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. Let's go into the area where you talked about, you talked to an athlete that you were working with, Drayvon, and he said, everyone wears a mask. We carry around a facade projecting an outer image of who we want to be. But when we're under stress, that fades away and you're left with what's underneath exposing you. And he told you there were two types of facades or masks that he generally sees people wear. How does that tie into our lack of self-awareness? Yeah. So this is where I call it the inner and outer need to align to a degree. And this is a real problem. And the best example I could give is in our modern world, it's Instagram, right? If your Instagram of life is like way up here in terms of like, it looks the greatest and like, you're always on vacations and your relationships are perfect and like, you're always working out and all that stuff. And in reality, you're sitting at home, maybe lonely, not eating well, not working out, not having success. What happens is, like, our brain is not dumb. Like, we've set it up to see the wrong expectations. And there's a gap between that kind of false reality that we're wearing and the actual reality. And the bigger that gap, the more kind of stress creates because like you're setting yourself up for failure for not living up to those that kind of facade you're creating so i think in the rest of the life it 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 applies the same as like who you are to friends to family and your workplace needs to align to a strong degree with who you are on the inside meaning like who you think you are your sense of self like all of those things there needs to be overlap and if not then you might get away with it for a while. But as soon as that difficult moment comes or that challenge that you have to face, the external just kind of fades away and all you're left is with the internal. And if you don't have that good overlap, then you're going to kind of retreat to freak out mode instead of, you know, being able to take on the challenge. And I hadn't thought about it till you were talking about it right there, Steve. But when you read some of the sad or tragic stories of these over the last few years of these social media celebrities, if you will, who commit suicide. And then you read, oh yeah, everything looked great on their page, but in reality, this is what their life was like. It seems like some of that is that duality or lack of consistency between how they're really living and what they're showing. And maybe that leads to a depression of sorts and a, hey, I can't handle this. Exactly. And actually, in the 1940s and 50s, there were a bunch of humanistic psychologists like Carl Rogers and others who basically came up with this idea is it was like self-concept clarity. And what they discovered and theorized is that like the more clarity we have on our sense of self, the better we are in terms of thriving, functioning, etc. And it comes back to that kind of overlap idea is when we don't have clarity, like it's really tough. And the example I could give to everyone that understands is go back and think about your middle school days when you're kind of in the middle school lunchroom and you're like, well, where do I sit? Where do I belong? Do I belong at this table? Like what sport or thing or activity should I try out for? Like, what do I want to do? Because you have no idea because you're lost in middle school. So your sense of self and your clarity is like really poor. And that's okay at that area because like we expect it 
But there's a problem when that kind of lasts and we feel like we're in that middle school lunchroom when we're in our teens and 20s. And that creates that sense, that kind of depression and that sense of uh, low-level chronic anxiety because we don't have that overlap between our kind of inner and external world. So I think you're spot on. I think even more so than ever, I almost think Instagram or social media influencer is one of the most dangerous things you can be, especially as a young adult, because it puts you ripe for going down the wrong path on this like clarity of self. And this didn't get helped by it. And I know you love this one. In the 80s or 90s, the flawed science that said, hey, we have to make every kid think that they are an absolute special snowflake and that they're all winners. Let's get rid of trophies. Let's get rid of MVPs. Let's just give all the kids a ribbon and tell them they're all winners and set them up for success. So what was the flawed science? And how has that actually backfired? And now we have this generation of kids who are entering the world and realizing, wait a second, I don't get a participation ribbon when I show up at work. I actually have to do the job. Yeah, I love this because it's a consequence of like well-meaning people. So this actually started by politicians out in California who kind of hopped on what they called the self-esteem movement, where they thought they could cure like society's ills by just telling people they're great and boosting their self-esteem. And the, the flawed science is this, is again, I'll said this before, but our brain is not dumb. If you tell someone they're great without actual doing anything or evidence behind it or anything like that, what happens is we don't internalize it as confidence. We don't internalize it as like, oh, this will actually boost my self-esteem. It just becomes like a platitude, right? And what happens is it backfires because, again, you look at, okay, we're giving people platitudes without like earning the confidence. And what the research clearly shows is that confidence demands evidence. So you gain confidence from doing the difficult thing and then maybe winning or doing the difficult thing and getting through it or on the other side and realizing like, oh, like I might not have aced the test, but I figured out I can actually take on this challenge and learn how to do it better. What doesn't give confidence is if you just give everybody a ribbon for showing up and participating, or you tell everybody they're great. You know, this was, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and this was like all in the schools at that that time is like, you know, we just had assemblies and things where they told us we were great and we were going to conquer the world and like you could be whatever you wanted to be if you just worked hard or whatever it is and it's like you know those things sound good in theory but like it doesn't really impact and furthermore what happens is it sets us up going back to those expectations it sets us up for a false sense of how the world works because as you said like when i go out into the world like i'm gonna face challenges i'm gonna fail I'm going to lose some games. So much better, and the evidence backs this up, is much better instead of like trying to give ribbons to all and create winners out of all is to teach people how to lose well or handle failure and bounce back. Because those are the skills that we're going to actually face because at some point, you know, I'm going to have a book that flops or I'm going to get fired or like I'm not going to be able to do what I thought I could do and I have to deal and process that. And when you think about, I love that idea that you said, well, the brain knows truly what's happening. Because if you've ever coached little kids in sport, you take soccer, you take hockey, whatever it is. Oh, we don't keep score at this age. They just play. 
at any point in the game, if you look at a kid on the bench and you say, hey, what's the score? Like, oh, we're, uh, we're losing 7-4 right now. They have a little debate. One kid says 7-4. One kid says we're up 6-2. to two. But like they are all keeping score the entire game in their heads. Like None of these kids play a sport and think, oh, yeah, we're just out here to kick the ball and make it downfield and have fun together. They're like, no, we are a team. We're here to win. It's like, it just seems so interesting that the powers that be decide, hey, we're not going to give them scores. But the kids themselves are like, oh, no, no, we're keeping score here. And, you know, I love that example because here's the problem. And I get the idea of, oh, we shouldn't keep score, like whatever in theory. But here's the problem with that. The entire problem with like, quote unquote, keeping score and score and youth sport, it isn't about the kids. The kids don't care. Like, they're going to keep score. They're going to know if they won or lost. They're going to handle that win or loss or what have you. It's the parents, right? It's the parents who like freak out and go nuts and are like crazy. So maybe the parents shouldn't keep score, but the kids definitely should, you know, because like what you want is the kids to learn how to lose, to like win gracefully, to like compete and all those things. So scoring can be great. What you don't want is the parent on the sideline, like, yelling at the ref because he blew the call for the six-year-old penalty shot or whatever have you like it's the parents who ruin the sport not the kids it's so true it's and i don't know if the person liked it when i said it but my first year of being a head coach for hockey for my youngest son was the first year of covid so no parents were allowed in the arenas someone was like oh yeah that's really sad like you know we can't be in to watch the games we can only watch the live streams and i was like well In fairness, as a coach, it's really good because you guys are the ones that make my job horrible. (laughs) And I kind of like not having you in there. But I don't know how well that went over for them. But it's like these kids are eight years old. They're nine years old. They're playing house hockey. They're not even like they're not going to the NHL. They're not going to the bigs. Just let them get on the ice and have fun. Learn how to win or lose and just enjoy it. Exactly. So it's like, again, it's one of those well-intentioned consequences where it's like, you know, somewhere some parents were like, oh, we shouldn't keep score. And it's like, no, no, that's not the problem. It's like the parents who freak out. So let the kids do it. And one other thing on this, because I love this topic, is a while ago, I was talking to uh, uh, Tom House, who's a, you know, famous baseball coach and, and worked with, you know, even in football, Tom Brady and stuff. And he had this theory, and I think there's some truth to it, is like, you know why video games have taken off? And I'm like, more than maybe in our area of going outside and playing sports. And it's like, there's a lot of reasons, but he's like, I think one of the reasons video games take off is because it's a place where you can play games, win, lose, you know, get your butt kicked with no parental involvement. It's just you and the kid, like your other friends, like playing games and no one yells at you. So Like, yeah, you get to be upset that you lost, but you don't have mom or dad, you know, on the drive home telling you like, oh, if you only made this shot in this game, like you would have won and you just get to move on and enjoy it. And I think there's a little bit of truth to that where it's like, maybe in sport, we need to bring back a little of that old school Sandlot style of where you're just playing the sport and you're keeping score and loving it and competing in and learning from it and mom and dad away from the sideline. I feel bad in a way because to some extent that's evolving a little and it's partially because if you look at up until probably four years ago, let's say five years ago, the parents hadn't played the video games the kids were playing. But now, like for example, when COVID started, Call of Duty came out with a mobile game so you could play on your iPhone or your iPad. So all of a sudden, 
a game that I'd been playing in my teens. My kids are into it, and I'm like, oh, well, let's the three of us play together. We're having fun, but then we don't win the match. And you're like, oh, son, like, you lost me. You lost us that game. And he's like, I'm eight years old. Like, I didn't lose anything. Like, who cares? We get to restart. And I'm like, ah! It's like, did I ruin Call of Duty for my poor little eight-year-old? And whether my poor little eight-year-old should be playing Call of Duty, we'll save for another day. But okay, let's shift direction on that one. Is one of the things you talked about earlier was have you put in the reps? And part of that, you talk about this concept of arrogance sits on insecurity and confidence sits on experience. And can you explain what you mean by that? And what are two or three ways that our listeners can increase that inner confidence? Yeah, absolutely. So often, you know, this is like a theme of our talk and the book. Often we think of confidence and we look for the external stuff. But if you're showing, if you're boasting, if you're the person who, you know, has to show the world that you're confident, often what happens is that's coming from insecurity. So you don't feel inner strength or inner confidence. So you have to almost convince yourself on the outside. Now, this isn't always true, right? I'm sure Muhammad Ali was very confident and was very externally confident as well. But the research does back up that on generally, if you're the one shouting, if you're the one claiming you're the best, you generally aren't. Like that's sitting on insecurity. And we know this from kind of research on bullying in grade school, right? Bullying often comes from people who feel alone, scared, like they don't belong. So they act out and act like confident, tough, etc. When in reality, inside, they're kind of missing some key psychological needs, like, again, a sense of connection or competency or other things like that. The same applies to adults. So how do we develop confidence? Well, as I said, it comes from the reps. So the best thing you can do is get to work. And then remind yourself of the work that you've put in because we have short memories. So one of the best things to do is before you're going into a a tough game or tough match or presentation or what have you, and there's good research behind this, if you watch some of the highlights or visualize some of the reps in practice or recall some of the tough workouts, what happens is we actually get a bump in testosterone instead of cortisol going into that game, which means that we have like a more challenge positive stress response to get ready to take on the challenge versus if we, for instance, when coaches show all the mistakes they made in practice or the last game before the next game, cortisol goes up and we see that game as a threat and we play worse and we're more stressed going into it. So the same thing applies to everything else is before the big thing that you're taking on, remember the reps that you put in or the things that you did well. The other things that I think, you know, quickly that work really well is when it comes to confidence, we often think of our peak performances. But what I like to think of and what research shows is that think of raising the floor as well, meaning that no matter what, if I show up on that game day, I'm capable of X. Because if your floor or your average performance gets better, then when everything aligns, your great performance is going to get better too. But you're not sitting there being like, oh, I hope it's a great day. I hope everything aligns. You're going to show up no matter what. And then the other thing that I think is really important for confidence is, is confidence isn't about perfection. It's not about I have to look 
like I'm always on, always, you know, perfect, always performing. But it's about, again, being kind of real. And that in a weird way, vulnerability can give us confidence because we acknowledge that, hey, this is something that I'm still struggling with. or This is something that I'm not quite there yet. And by acknowledging it, we kind of take the power away because it doesn't become this like big thing of like, oh, this is a threat because it's a weakness and I'm not ready. It becomes a thing where we say, yeah, like it might be a weakness, but like I'm aware of it and I'm continuing work on it and it's not as big of a deal as I'm going to make it out to be. I love that one. And I want to take us back to the one you talked about with the watching video. And so if you, a sport where you do that a lot is football, for example. And this one ties a little, do a digression and then bring it back to that. When you're raising a child with ADHD, as an example, one thing they say from the science is, hey, your kid hears all day at school, in life, what they've done wrong. The best thing you can do as their parent is really praise everything that you see that you want repeated or that they've done well and reinforce like, hey, I just saw you drawing for half an hour. Like your focus was great. Like really love watching you draw and just really zone in on what they're doing well. And so now take that into the the coaching room because I, I often forget to make these translations from one area to another. I'm watching game film with the team. What I'm hearing is it's better for me to say to the kids on the offensive line, for example, hey, I'm going to stop this video when you did exactly what we want. Do you see what you did there? Can you do that on every play versus going straight to the, oh, do you see how you screwed that up? And is that what we want to do is really spend most of the time on what they did well? Exactly. And the caveat I'd give here is, of course, we have to correct mistakes and like correct things. But it's like you said, we have a bias. Whether we look at teaching, whether we look at parenting, whether we look at coaching, we have a bias towards always correcting. And what happens is we tend to overcorrect and overshow of like, oh, this is where you messed up and this is what we have to do. And what happens is, just like your example with ADHD, is the kid, the athlete, the child, like they internalize like, oh, I just continually mess up. I'm not good at this thing. And instead, what we want to internalize is like, it's okay to mess up, but also look at the things that you've done well and look at how you've made progress and look at your execution on like, hey, this is a really good thing. And my wife is an elementary school teacher. So this really resonates with me because she'll tell you like, you get in this mode where you're like, oh, I need to correct this or you did this math problem wrong or like you messed up this sentence. But if you do that, like you're not instilling the things that cultivate that motivation and that true confidence based on like, hey, I succeeded or I took on this challenge or like I really tried here. So another example in sporting is like if you want to highlight things where like we need to correct, that's great, but also highlight the things that they tried to do that maybe didn't succeed. But you could see like, hey, I saw where you were trying to make this move or this pass and that was a good idea. But like, here's how maybe we can improve this in the future. And it gives you that avenue where instead of it's beat down, beat down, beat down, 
Then, and the last thing I'll say on this, because I love this topic, is think of it also, there's like sensitive periods. So if you correct someone after a loss, and you go right after the loss, and you go in, these are all the things you can make. That's a sensitive period, because they're already down, and all you're doing is pushing them down, right? Or right before a game, or what have you. Or another example is like, in front of the classroom versus individually, like, all of those are different sensitive periods where maybe that negative thing like hits them harder than if you did it at a different time when the emotions weren't as high or they weren't in front of their peers or they weren't in front of the rest of the class. And you can have like that correction without it becoming like, oh, this teaches me, you know, never to raise my hand and give an answer because if I get it wrong, I'm going to get embarrassed by everybody, right? So if I was coaching a, a game two nights ago and we were having a rematch against a team that uh, had beat us a couple days earlier, when I'm in the dressing room, I shouldn't whiteboard and circle the net and say, hey, boys, last game we played two days ago. They scored four goals right here. And all you need to do is lift their sticks and they can't score there. And then we go out within three minutes, they score three goals from that spot. And I'm like, oh, geez, this isn't starting well. But we turned it around. I didn't talk about that anymore. I said, hey, how about we focus on forechecking? And they went and had fun and forechecked and won the game. But that's exactly what you said. So they were already high stress. They're already thinking about the fact that they just lost to these guys. And I'm telling them, hey, here's what you did wrong. Instead of saying, hey, we lost last game, but here's what we did really well that if we build on, you guys can win. Exactly. It's the old adage. Like if you're playing golf and you think don't hit it in the water or sand trap, where does the ball go? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. So we'll switch to the next pillar. And my first question is a bit of a multi-part or a bit of a monologue, sorry, but I was trying to tie two or three things you were doing in different sections together. And so you had Robert Wright wrote in the book, Why Buddhism is True, what emotions are for is to activate and coordinate the modular functions that are, in Darwinian terms, appropriate for the moment. And so then what you said was, in other words, they are the first step in a cascade design to prepare us for action. And then that processing you labeled, that's our interception system. And I probably pronounced that wrong, so you'd be able to help me there. And the interesting part was that, one, it's not predictive, it's react, or sorry, it's predictive, not reactive, which I, I was fascinated by. And the second was that when operating well, individuals are clear about their feelings, understanding where they came from and what they mean and are more likely to thrive under stress, anxiety, and pressure. So it seems like that system is something that we want to improve significantly. And so I'll hand that over to you and and let you unpack my mangling. Okay, great. So it's called the interoceptive system, which is basically what it is, is How good are you at listening to your body and those feelings and emotions that come through? And the example I'll use is there was a wonderful study on investors and stock market brokers that found that those who had a better interoceptive system actually made more money. And the reason was pretty simple is they could read their body's kind of emotions and feelings as they were going through the trading, which means that they 
responded to what they were doing in an appropriate manner versus maybe like reading the wrong signal and freaking out. So the other example I'll give, which I gave in the book is, okay, how does this make sense? Well, if I'm an athlete and I'll just say I'm a runner, if I'm a runner and I go out and coach says, hey, go run, and I start feeling something in my quad or my calf or what have you, if I have a good anteroceptive system, meaning I'm able to read the internal signals, then I know whether that feeling in that quad is like fatigue or if it's something that I shouldn't feel, meaning it's something that's going to lead towards an injury, right? And the really good athletes are really able to read their body and they say, oh no, this is a normal signal. This just means I'm getting a little tired or I'm working hard or maybe I need some water or some fuel or what have you versus, no, this is my body shutting down or this is my muscle like starting to strain or tear or whatever have you. And that's what it is for all aspects of life. So we have all these signals that are essentially our body's way to communicate and keep our brain informed and say, hey, something's a little bit different. So when we feel that, I don't know, that fear when we're walking at night in a down a dark street or what have you, why does that happen? Because our brain says, hey, it's the environment around us is different. We've never been here. It's dark. Like you're alone. So I'm going to send a, a fear signal to get you to say, hey, I need to pay attention and not be on my phone in this situation because maybe nothing happens, but like I need you to be alert. So be alert. So it really is how do we understand and listen to your body and, and the question, okay, how do we do that? There's a number of different ways, but you mentioned one of the best ways at the start of this, which is mindfulness and meditation, which what else is that but paying attention, right? And sitting with your thoughts, those feelings and noticing them, not just jumping to a conclusion, but being like, oh, okay, like I feel this, you know, I feel my breath rise and fall. I feel that like urge to move or that like little anxiety I feel from maybe wanting to get up and check my phone or whatever it is. And the more time we spend paying attention and aware, the better we're going to train that interoceptive system because we're not just pushing away those signals, but we're like listening to them. And when you think of that example you gave, hey, I've got a feeling in my quad and a lot of times you might say to a young kid, like, oh, are you hurt or are you injured? And for some of these kids, they don't even know the difference between the two. But how do you train them to start to see the difference between, oh, it's sore versus, hey, I think I might have an injury. And I think of my oldest son, he plays football and basketball and a lot of hours a week. And I ask him, you know, how do you feel? And he's like, oh, I'm sore. Like, my legs always hurt. Like, and I'm like, oh, like when you're playing, he's like, no, 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 they hurt all the time. And I'm like, oh, like, you know, but he's not able to like really say like on a scale of one to 10 or where the pain is or what it feels like. He just has this general concept that legs. Yeah. I mean, that's how it is. Again, my wife's elementary school teacher. And I think this is, we have to look, understand, especially with kids, but even adults, how do we figure that out? Well, we have to give them the labels, the guidance, the expiration so that they can understand this stuff and understand what is normal and what's not. So for instance, yeah, my wife teaches elementary school and she was just talking about a kid the other day who was new to school and 
was freaking out and kind of throwing a tantrum. And like she had to sit down in a quiet voice and be like, you know, not just be like, what's wrong with you? But be like, can you use your words to explain what's going on? To tell me what you're feeling. And with a first grader, those words might be simple. They might be, I feel sad, right? Well, sadness for us could be lonely or depressed or jealous or whatever it is, like, because we have more vocabulary behind it. But our job as parents, as teachers, as coaches, and even with adults is to like give that verbiage behind it to explore those ideas so that we connect that feeling that and sensation to something that we can use, which is our kind of language behind it. And so part of that is helping them have the language to be able to label it and then teaching them. Because I believe when you describe this, you you use the term nuance is what we want to increase to be able to do this, is to have the, the two components, the awareness of the sensation, and then the ability to interpret and contextualize that awareness. And a couple of the ways you talked about that they can use to address this were the idea of going deep and naming it. What does that look like for someone to increase their ability to understand what's happening? Yeah, so going deep is pretty simple, is that too often with our feelings, emotions, we ignore and push it away. So instead, what I want people to do is like sit with it, explore it, like understand it. What does that anxiety feel like? Is that anxiety or is it excitement behind it? And then the other part I think is really important is that naming it. Right. It comes back to that elementary school example. If the only word you have to describe what you're feeling is sad, then all emotions or feelings related to that are going to be classified as sadness. And that does us very little good because doesn't tell us what's actually wrong. So instead, what we want to do is add that context and nuance and give it different names. Right. So for example, I'll give you a running example is like, that voice or that feeling that I want to quit in the race, like, you can name it. Like, oh, that's just my protective self. Because all it is is trying to protect me from, like, pushing harder and damaging my body. But I don't have to listen to my protective self because I just kind of acknowledge and say, yeah, yeah, I hear you, but I'm not actually in danger right now. Thanks for the warning. I'm going to still keep going. And we can do that with everything from anxiety to whatever have you. It's just kind of label it so that we can then deal with it. And a couple of key points you said in there that a lot of the listeners may not realize, but it's great to zone in on. One of them, you talked about the anxiety versus excitement and the idea that certain emotions physiologically may show up the same way. So when you feel excited, you may have the same energy in your body as when you feel anxious. And how you label it may allow you to perform better. So instead of saying, well, I feel anxious for this speech I'm about to give, you could say, well, I feel excited for this speech I'm about to give in changing the label. And, oh gosh, the second one was a good one and I forget it at the moment. So let's focus on that energy system and recognizing that you can have two different sides of it. Exactly. I think that's, you know, the easiest example there is, and what latest psychology shows us is that like the context we apply to what we're feeling and experience helps shapes like how we respond to it. So our behavioral action. So I can have that same feeling, you know, I'm about to step on stage 
or to the starting line or what have you. And like the underlying physiology is pretty similar. Well, it's some cortisol, some adrenaline, all that stuff. But if I interpret that as anxiety and dread, then that's going to push me towards an action that is more avoidant, right? How do I get out of this thing? How do I escape this thing? If I interpret that and I label it as, hey, I get it. This feels a little unnerving, but it's also my adrenaline getting me ready. Like, of course, I'm a little nervous because I'm about to do something that's very difficult. And what do I want to be able to do when I'm difficult? Well, I want the adrenaline to keep me focused and supply, you know, have energy go into my muscles so I can move and all that good stuff. So it's a little exciting to go through it. And that shapes a different behavioral response. It tells me, hey, it's normal to feel this stuff. And this stuff is getting me prepared for action. So I'm going to take this on instead of avoid it. Love it. And I recall the second one, Steve, is when you said understanding what that emotion is and going deep on it, and you said people push it away. One of the things that a lot of us do is we go to avoidance tools, whether it's porn, alcohol, drugs. And a large part of that is because we're uncomfortable with what's actually happening. And so one of the things you might often say to someone is, before you have that drink, just ask yourself, what is it that I'm trying to avoid? And I think what you're suggesting when you ask them that is go deep, explore what the emotion is before you try to kick it away with a beer. Exactly. And there's this applies to so many things in life. And I'll give you the other example is in the modern world, think of boredom. Like, what do we do when we just feel bored? If you're standing in line at the movie theater or at the airport, you pick up your phone, right? Why do we do that? Well, we do that instinctually because the feeling of boredom is a little uncomfortable. So we reach for our phone, as you said, to cope with it. And there are so many things in life where we just kind of feel something a little bit, and then our instinct is like, okay, what do I cope with? What do I cope with? And instead, the best thing you can do sometimes is, well, you feel bored in line, well, just sit there. Sit with it. And if you sit with it, you're going to like go deep, explore, and what happens is you realize like, okay, I can be bored in my head for a minute or two. This isn't like I'm sitting alone in my head for hours. Like, it's a minute or two. Like, it's going to be okay. And you take away some of that power from that negative emotion and turn it into something that you can deal with. And so you raise a super good point there because it's one of the biggest challenges for people in life. And that is the section from your book is the skill of being alone in your head is a foundational piece of developing toughness. And most of us are horrible at it. When we're alone with our thoughts, everything is amplified. The apparent power between the feelings, thoughts increase several fold. Our likelihood of pushing towards rumination and spiraling increases. The solution is pretty straightforward. Get used to being alone in your head. And so for, for me, some of the things that you talk about, Buddhism, CBT, they help. And we'll take it back after to the fact that we had 35,000 thoughts a day and how to think about those thoughts. But How do people use meditation, Buddhism, CBT to deal with this being alone in their head? You know, this is like the, it's the human condition. Like we don't like being alone in our head. 
So I think all of those tools, whether you're looking at Buddhism, CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, like all of them work really well. And what I would suggest is what happens is we often let the kind of complexity or what have you get in the way of actually taking action. So instead of thinking like, oh, I have to sit down and meditate. Or I have to go to a therapist and practice, you know, learn to practice cognitive behavioral therapy is make it simple and make it consistent in your life in whatever manner that is. So if you don't like to meditate, well, guess what? If you have a dog, go take your dog for a walk and leave your phone at home and just enjoy the walk. And you don't have to necessarily think, oh, I'm going to pay attention to this, this or this. At the very, we're so bad at spending time alone in our head. That if you just get outside and don't give yourself anything else to pay attention to, that is training for your mind, right? The other thing I would say is look for those small moments. So small moments, the standing in line, the doing dishes, the cooking dinner, like those folding or doing your laundry, like all of those provide opportunities to be alone in your head. Well, yes, you're doing, you know, laundry or other things, but you can be mindful in that moment. And the more you kind of consistently train that muscle, the better you're going to be. And the research backs this up is I think often, you know, people think mindfulness and they think, oh, I have to, you know, become a monk or whatever have you. But the research shows that a couple minutes, four to five times a week, shows very significant benefits in terms of focus, attention, like dealing with thoughts and emotions and all those things and giving you some equanimity. So if that's all it takes to get started, well, just get started in however manner that fits your lifestyle or function. And you talk about an example in the book that ties to the go for the walk with the dog. And on past episodes, I think actually my very first one, I had a friend on who we talked a lot about creativity and mindfulness. And a realization I had with him on the show was I write a fantasy novel series with my sister on the side, something to do. And most often my ideas would either come when I was meditating, but the second one was when I would be out on a run, but my headphones or my phone, like there was one of them wasn't fully charged. So I had to go for a run without music, just, you know, 10, 20 K little jog and nothing to distract me. And you talked about one of your runners. It's not necessarily that I was, you know, like you said, in flow state, but I wasn't distracted. And that let my mind have some clarity and some freedom to do its thing. You want to talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a runner. So this is like near and dear to my heart. But what happens is when we look at especially creativity, and I'll tie this outside of running as well. If you ask people when they have their creative insights or their aha moments, it's almost inevitably when they're going on walks, when they're in the shower, like when they're doing random yard work, and you're like, well, why do our insights happen then? Well, it's pretty simple. Like at some point, we've done work to think about something, maybe you're writing the book and what have you. And then you, what happens is you step away and you do something else and you've given your mind the freedom to kind of wrestle with that subconsciously and like explore it even consciously. And that aha moment comes up. But far too often, what we do is we cope. We go for the music. We listen to the podcast. We do the thing that distracts us. 
instead of having that space for our mind to kind of like deal with and wrestle with the thing. And I'm not saying again, I'm not saying never listen to the podcast, like do it. But also make sure you have time in your day where you're giving yourself that kind of time and space to train your mental muscle. And people say like, oh, well, I don't want to go on the run without it. Well, I'm not telling you to do every run without it. I'm saying pick a couple. Or alternatively, if you don't exercise or use running as exercise, well, guess where another great spot for that is? Your commute to work. Like just every once in a while, turn the radio off, like don't listen to the podcast and just take the whatever, the 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes and just be in silence and driving and you've gone to work enough where you're almost on autopilot with driving. So it gives your mind just a little bit of that time to space to be alone and wrestle with, you know, the inner world. Which likely scares a lot of people. And part of that is also because when you think about our internal dialogue, Depending on the science, I always use the the 35,000 thoughts a day. And when we think about those thoughts, if you start to examine them, most of them seem to be negative. They seem to be on a repeat cycle of every day I tell myself how shitty I am at life. It's like, oh, well, I start to believe I'm shitty at life. And so when it comes to winning that inner debate, you talk about three concepts we can use inside versus outside positive or negative, knowing what voice to listen to. And you talked about this a little earlier. And and then the one that really blew me away was this this idea that we can reframe from me to she was the example you gave. How can we use these to, instead of letting those 30,000 negative thoughts beat us up all day, be in a positive state of mind and have that mental muscle to live life? Yeah, exactly. So I think the biggest thing or the first thing is to understand why our thoughts tend to be negative in the sense that they're just protective. So for instance, I'll give you an example. I have obsessive compulsive disorder. So I have OCD and OCD, you know, contrary to popular kind of portrayal, isn't necessarily a disorder of like obsessive cleaning. That is the coping mechanism. What comes before it is like OCD, you tend to, at least in most instances, you tend to have like these crazy thoughts that pop up in your head of like, oh, like, you know, for example, the cleaning, oh, I touched something and now I'm going to die because I have germs on my hand. So I have to obsessively clean. Or in my case, like I had, uh, I have OCD around harm for things. So if I see a knife, the thought that comes in my head is like, oh, you're going to pick up that knife and like stab yourself somehow. Now, The reason those come out is because your brain is almost with OCD, it's on hyper alert for things to be aware of. So you see the knife and part of your brain is like, oh, a knife is dangerous. Like I should just be a little aware. But because you will have OCD, it like amplifies it tenfold. Okay. Well, the same process occurs for everybody else. Even if you don't have OCD is like, we see the things that are dangerous and that we should pay attention to. And often our thoughts go towards those in a negative direction as if to protect ourselves, right? So once you understand that, you learn a couple of things. A is that you're not your thoughts and that often your thoughts are just kind of there. They're just kind of, hey, there's a knife, be aware of it. Or like, hey, I'm driving a car, be aware you're driving in a car and you could crash or what have you, so pay attention. And then B, 
is because we're not our thoughts, we get to change our kind of experience with them. So one of the examples you you gave is one of the best ones to do is to create what researchers or psychologists call psychological distance, which when we create space between our thought and who we are, then we can deal with it better. So if I, one of the ways to do that is change like how I'm talking to myself. So if instead of I use first person, like I can do this or what have you, and change it to second or third person, so, you know, you, he, Steve, Jim, Bob, whatever, can do this, come on, Steve, what happens is just by that simple shifting, it kind of knocks our brain for our loop and says, oh, wait a minute, this isn't the constant negative, like, first person voice, this is a different voice, I should pay attention to this. So in the middle of that difficult thing, you know, you change your voice and you say, come on, Steve, get it together. Come on, Steve, like you can get through this moment. What happens is our brain interprets it differently. And it doesn't become this negative anchor on us, but it kind of frees us up. So what I would suggest to listeners is in those moments where you're going negative, change how you're talking to yourself. And often that kind of frees you up so that you can deal with the thought instead of having it be in charge. And do you think that's interesting because I hadn't thought about it, but when we think of a lot of high-performing athletes, you'll often hear them speak in that way. So instead of saying, you know, oh, I can make that shot, they'll be, Shaq can make that shot or Shaq can do this. And and you're thinking, oh, it's kind of weird that that guy's like using his own name. Like who does that? But they're almost creating that psychological distance And they've realized something, maybe through science, because they've worked with a sports psychologist, or maybe simply they've realized when they put that distance between I versus, and even my oldest son sometimes will do that with basketball. Oh, Caden can shoot three-pointers. It's like, when did you start speaking about yourself in the third person? Like, that's kind of weird. But but he, he picks his spots. It's not like he does it all the time. He does it in a very specific spot where he's saying, I can do that. Instead of saying, I can do that, he'll be like, Caden can do that. I think, and often we make fun of athletes for it, but I think what it is, is think about it like that. If you're Shaq, for example, and you've spent your life like having to do this crazy difficult thing on the basketball court and being under pressure and all that stuff, is eventually, whether consciously or subconsciously, you figure out some tools that work and you stick with it. And I think that's what happened. And you can actually see this Another way to create this distance is to go from talking internally or externally, because like often that creates a little distance because your brain's like, hey, wait a minute, I'm not just hearing this inside my voice, I'm hearing this actually through my ears as well. And you you see athletes do this, for instance, when they're at the free throw line, you can see guys mumbling to themselves, or when their tennis players are about to serve and it's a difficult serve, sometimes you see them like talking to themselves on TV. And I think it's, again, that comes intuitively. They've learned, hey, this is something that works in pressure situations. So I'm going to talk to myself out loud, even if that sounds a little bit crazy and makes me look a little mad. And you yourself had that in one of your runs when you realized, wait a second, I just heard myself out loud. And that tells me that I'm actually not as tired as I I was mentally telling myself, because if I was, we both know you can't talk. If you're running your hardest, you can't talk. So the fact that you heard your voice said, hey, I can catch up to my teammate who's 100 yards up the road. Speed up and catch up and have one of your better runs. 
Exactly. And that's a great example of like, I didn't know the science. I didn't know the psychology, but it just happened. And I realized after that, I'm like, hey, this is a pretty good tool. I'm going to try and use this at times. And I think this is, again, this is something why sometimes we need to look at what performers do and like take the lesson from that and kind of use that tool for in the rest of our life. And that's the key thing is taking what we learn in one spot and using it in other spots. And this next one, because what we're talking about here right now is steadying the mind. And the second half of that, or a part of it, is the idea, and this goes back millennia, like people were figuring this out thousands of years ago, and that is, it's not the event that matters, it's how we respond to the event. So whether it's Stoicism, whether it's Buddhism, they would both say, don't focus on the event, focus on our response. And one of the better people as well who talks about that is Viktor Frankl, who you, you talk about in the book, and everything or not everything, but a lot of what I focus on in life is increasing the gap between a stimulus and a response and saying, hey, give me more time in that area so that I can choose my response to the stimulus. What does that look like? And what are some of the things people can do to improve their response relative to a stimulus? Yeah, this is one of those where I just love when ancient wisdoms from like a variety, you mentioned like Stoicism, Buddhism, but like basically every ancient wisdom or religion tells us like, hey, you've got to have some equanimity or like not react to everything. And if you are overly reactive, like that's the thing that causes you the pain or suffering. So to me, like, it's all about how do we create that space. And again, I'll give you the simple answer, which is like the more we practice it, the more we take simple opportunities where it's like something is difficult, demanding, anxiety inducing. And we do what Viktor Frankl said, which is like put some space between that stimulus and response, the better situation we're going to be in. And this is what like high performers, and I mentioned this at the beginning, they have what's called emotional and cognitive flexibility. Well, what is emotional cognitive flexibility? But being in the heat of the moment and being able to kind of step back and pause and like just create that little gap where it's like, oh, I don't have to take the easy path. I don't have to like cope and, you know, or take the cheap and easy coping mechanism or reach for the, the candy when the vegetable or nutritious thing is sitting right there. So to me, it's how do we train that ability, put ourselves in that spot, some difficult demanding stuff, and then work on kind of sitting with it, work on not going to the straight reaction, like giving yourself the tools so that, you know, you can flex, be flexible and adaptable instead of, you know, just defaulting towards the easy path. And when you talk about that, putting yourself in that difficult or demanding spot, which ties to, to the whole concept of do hard things, is the idea that we don't rise to the level of our expectations, but fall to the level of our training. But one of the important things, because a lot of listeners can listen to us, because I always talk about build your get shit done muscle and you do it by doing hard things. And they're like, well, like I can't run a marathon or do an Ironman. But I think one of the concepts is just meeting yourself where you're at. And what's hard for you may simply be, hey, you got to wake up at the same time every day. It doesn't have to be straight to some monumental task. It can be something small that for you is consequentially 
a hard thing. Exactly. And this is where I think people, when you say, I've experienced this so much with the book since it's named Do Hard Things, people think like, oh, I got to climb my own Mount Everest. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're just talking about whatever is kind of difficult for you. And that's going to be different. So for instance, you know, one of the most difficult things that we all face right now is like, if our phone goes off, we reach for it. Or if a notification comes out, we reach for it. Well, one of the simplest hard things you can do is, you know what? Like, leave your phone on the table and don't pick it up. Like, don't pick it up during dinner or while you're reading a book or while you're on this podcast or what have you. Is like, be okay if it buzzes, beeps, like, you know, dings, whatever it is, that you're okay. Like, sitting there. And not reacting by being like, oh, I got to check, I got to check, I got to check. So to me, it's like the simplest things are often the best tools for training that mental muscle. And the other things that I would do say is part of being able to take on those challenges and create those space is developing what I'd call, you know, we've talked about negative ways to cope, but developing some of those positive ways to cope, like changing your inner voice or like being able to give yourself perspective in that moment, where it's like, for instance, in the grand scheme of things, getting out the door for a 30-minute run, like, is that really going to be that difficult? Is that really that time-consuming? Like, I know it feels overwhelming at this moment, but can I just get out the door? Like, creating that perspective is another tool that allows you to kind of take on that challenge. So create, so give yourself a variety of tools and develop them so that regardless of the hard thing you're facing, like you have some way to get, you know, navigate on the other side of it. It almost never comes down to time and reality. Because anytime you challenge yourself, one of the things I love to do is streaks. And so when you challenge yourself to do something in a, as a streak, you realize there's always time. So- how do you fit it in? Where do you fit it in? And are you willing enough to fit it in? Which ties, just realize, here's a good segue, into the last pillar. And earlier we talked about the performance equation and you had said actual effort divided by expected effort. And then later we added multiplied by drive. So if you want it, you've got the drive, you're going to go get it. So why do we add the modifier now multiplied by drive? What does that do to the equation and how does that shift it? Yeah. So the reason I like to add this is because if you look at uh, the science and psychology behind performances, we never reach our full potential. We always have more left. So if I was to go out and say, hey, you know, Clint, go run the hardest, you know, 10K that you ever have, like it's life or death, go for it. Even in that situation, even if I gave you said, hey, I'm going to give you a million dollars, like at the end of it, you still wouldn't go to your absolute depths. So it's modifiable. So how far we go is modifiable by our motivation and drive. So the more meaning and purpose behind it. So if I show up for, uh, you know, that 10K and I say, hey, just try your best, you know, I, I might be able to push pretty hard. But if I say, Hey, Clint, if you run this 10K at this some point, I'm going to give you X, Y, and Z reward. Your motivation goes up, right? And you're able to push a little bit further. This is why if you look at athletes who win things, they often, what do they do? They think God, family, team, like things that gave them motivation beyond just, hey, this is a paycheck. 
right? And that's where that kind of motivation and drive comes in. And the other thing I'd say is that the research is very clear is that intrinsic drivers, so not just that reward or cash or whatever that have you, intrinsic drivers are much more powerful and much longer and more sustainable over the long haul. So a big part of it is how do we create the environment and the culture to up those intrinsic drivers so that we have that motivation so that when it comes to doing the difficult thing or in that crucial moment, like we have that drive that kind of get us through it. That is the key right there. How do we help people find that intrinsic motivation in life? So I'll kind of simply direct it to one of the most robust theories in psychology, self-determination theory, which basically says, if we want to cultivate intrinsic drivers, we need three things. Autonomy, which means we have like a sense of we can make an impact. We have some control over the situation, not full control, but like our life, our destiny is in our hands to a degree in this pursuit. Mastery, which means I can see progress. I'm getting better. I have a avenue forward for making progress in this job, sport, etc. And then belonging, which is I have a sense of community. I feel connected to others. I feel like I belong on this team, this group, this workplace, etc. And if you can cultivate those three things, our intrinsic motivation goes up. So to me, it's how do we create the environment or lead in that way to create those intrinsic motivators? And then three, in our own personal life, how do we create the the space so that we're fueling those instead of fueling more of the extrinsic motivators that we often think of as like being the keys to drive or motivation? Oh, I love it. That's a beautiful spot to end the deep dive into the book, Do Hard Things. Do you have a minute for we ask a final four questions that are rapid fire at you? Yeah, let's do it. The first is, what's one book you've read that's had a pretty life-changing impact on you? Oh, gosh. I read way too many books. But I'm going to go with the the default. There's two books, actually, I'll give you. Both that tie into this conversation. Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I just love it. Oh, such a winner. And then Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I think it's another just kind of life-changing book where you read that and you're just like, Light bulbs go off and you're like, this guy got it. Like, this is how I should live life. Yeah. The in, influenced by by those is uh, James Stockdale's uh, short little read. because very similar takeaways to Viktor Frankl's. So oh, those are two wonderful ones. Now I'm excited for the uh, day after that. Uh, what's on the bookshelf right now? You read a lot. I can see lots of books behind you. What's the big one that you're digesting? Oh, man. That's a great question. So... I'm reading a book, and the name's going to slip me my mind right now. Um, of course it is. But it's on how disasters allow us almost... We think when disasters occur that people go into chaos and are selfish and all this stuff. But if you actually look at the research, it shows that when disasters occur, we become more selfless, generally. We feel more connected to others. Depression actually goes down because we're like feel alive and we're helping others and we're not self-centered. So a wonderful, wonderful book. I forget what the name is. It's like Paradise. It, oh, that's what it is. A, a Paradise Built in Hell. Oh, wow. I love this. So really recommend it kind of reframes what it looks at. Again, our kind of common tropes around 
you know, natural disasters or war or experience of bombing during World War II. And it's really kind of a refreshing take. Oh, I love that. And what's one thing that you have spent less than $1,000 on in the last 12 months that you wish you'd bought sooner? Oh, man. Less than $1,000, something that I wish I bought sooner. I'm going to be honest. I don't buy many things except for books. So (laughs) I like to invest in knowledge. So that's, I lie. So one thing, you know, one other thing that is really important, I buy lots of them is notebooks everywhere. Because, and I used to not be a notebook person, but now I am. Because like, I think just having a notebook on my desk, by my bedside, like I even have a small one to take on walks sometimes, like it allows me to capture those thoughts, those aha moments, and like also pushes me, almost invites me to get off the computer and just like journal or think about things or wrestle with ideas. And I think that's so important nowadays. Yeah, you have to be able to capture. And a lot of people say they just use the Notes app. The problem is the Notes app's on your phone. And as soon as you go to capture, it's like, oh, I might as well check out whether someone liked my post on Instagram or not. Exactly. Get a dopamine hit while I'm here. Uh, so because the show's about growth, what's one mindset shift, habit, or behavior you've changed in the last 12 months that's had a big impact on your life? Oh gosh, last 12 months. How I see, how I see, uh, running actually. So for most of my life, I saw it through a competitive performance lens. And it's only in the last year I've kind of seen it as more of, well, what role do I want it to play if I'm not trying to run as fast as I can? Which is more of, well, I get to go outside and, and be in nature. I get to be alone in my head. It's almost like my meditative thought. It relieves my, it can be a stress reliever. And like that simple mindset shift on something that used to be so competitive to me has been really refreshing and, and also freeing. And I think what it's taught me is like the things that maybe in our youth we use for one thing, we can like kind of like repurpose them and use them for something completely different as our priorities change and uh, as we enter adulthood. And if you looked at it at all and said, hey, I'm going to shift from what I used to do, as an example, running the mile a lot. So instead of doing mid-distance, I'm going to do long distances on trails. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now I used to be like, oh, how fast am I running? Oh, let me go to the track so I can like run my intervals the fastest because it's the flat. And now I spend a lot more time being like, you know what? I don't care if I'm running slow as hell, like on a trail that's maybe windy and technical or what have you. It's like, this is just cool. Another thing is, I'll tell you that I used to would have beat myself up over is like, sometimes I'll literally just stop and be like, hey, this is like, I'm on an awesome trail. Like I'm going over maybe a river or what have you. Like I'm just going to stop and enjoy this for a moment versus be like, oh, if I stop here, this is going to ruin my workout or what have you. So I think that framing has really kind of helped. And there's something, Steve, about trail running relative to road running. I think the way I described it to someone was it has an essence of bringing me back to childhood because you're like... You're watching your feet on the dirt and you're having to jump over roots. And it's like you're not just trudging on the concrete. You're interacting with your environment. It's adult play. 
Yeah. And I think we miss out so much as we no longer play and play is essentially exploring and like doing all that stuff. And I think you're spot on is like running on trails is a great way to just kind of play. Yeah. And the last part about that for listeners, because I love to encourage people to get on a trail. I want to get back to it is, you know, if you think about like a road race, like you do the Vancouver Sun Run, there's like 10,000 people. Like you are with people the entire time. When you go for a trail race, especially when you get to the longer distances, you can sometimes go for like an hour or two and there's no one in sight. Like you are literally, and they don't let you listen to music. So you are legit alone meditating in your mind for an hour on a trail by yourself. I love it. I think there's just something magical to it. All right. We went pretty wide. We went pretty deep in a number of areas. Is there anything we missed? that you want to leave the listeners with before we wrap up? Oh, gosh. No, I think we we covered a lot. And I just want to say I loved your your style of uh, conversing. And it was really enjoyable to have this conversation. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. And where can people find you? Yeah. So you can find me on all social media at Steve Magnus. And then all of my work is also at www.stevemagnus.com. I've got a newsletter, podcast, all that good stuff. So check it out. Excellent. Perfect. Thank you for joining me. It was a blast. If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.